I'm here with Hugh Mitchell, Group HR Director of Shell, to discuss how he made it to the top and his thoughts on the changing role of HR in organisations. So Hugh, what would you say were the defining moments in your career? Yeah, I, I would say probably Deborah, there's, there's two themes that are consistent in, the, in what I've described was the, the best breakthroughs I had. One was on a couple of occasions I was moved into a role that really I didn't tick any of the boxes for. So. So it wasn't as if um, you know I'd got the relevant experience to the role, and it was really just because, in this case, line managers, so not HR managers, but line managers, had faith and confidence in me to do this to do this role. So you you were really out of your comfort zone, and you you felt quite vulnerable. And one in particular, I took on the uh, the head of oil products, which is all the kind of marketing and, and downstream parts of, of Shell. I, that was a, in, in Shell terms a kind of double or triple jump. Um, so quite unusual, mm. um, and that yeah, for a while I thought, wow, I'm really out my depth here. But uh, it did force you to to think very carefully about your own learning and how you develop and so on. So that would be one component. The other component, I've been very lucky that at least I think in three or four occasions I've been asked to create a new job, so I had no predecessor. Now in many ways that's a a great blessing because yeah. you, you know you can't be compared with the one person who went before you because there wasn't one but likewise you have no anchors you have no kind of hooks mm. to to look at the role from and again so that felt kind of slightly highly risky but it was also a real opportunity to say well this is my agenda and I'll shape it and and so it really was like starting with a blank sheet of paper saying mm. and in one case it was a very new business um, it was pulling together various things which had been done, trading and shipping and various other activities that had been done on a much more local basis, pulling them into a global business. And you know, the person that ran it literally gave me a week to decide, so how many people do you need in your department? What are the things you're going to do yourself? What things are you going to draw support from other parts of the company on? And you know, I was working somewhere completely different. I had no idea. So you literally just had to kind of go out and you know, have a stab at it and then, and then take it forward from that basis. So th those were, for me, I think, the experiences that I can remember as being quite dramatic. So, I mean, I suppose if, the, if there's any advice in it, it's if people offer you the chance to do those kind of slightly off-the-routine things, yeah. then it's always great to take them because uh, they actually are what shape you at the end of the day. Yeah. And how essential do you think it is to spend time outside of the function so you clearly had a number of opportunities to do that and seize them in some companies it's more difficult to do that it is I, I think it, it varies I mean if I look at my own leadership team in Shell I think every single one of us has worked outside our function um, and that probably has been beneficial but I think probably it's more important that you you've worked closely in the business so I remember having a a debate with a with a colleague of mine, I won't mention the company, who was who was head of HR for this company, and this person was a business person, and and this lady said to me, well, in our company we would we would never have an HR person as the head of HR. We would always have a business person, and we know each other very well, so we could have a good conversation about this over over a glass of wine. And I said, so so who knows more about the business, you or me? And this particular lady said, well, I ran this line of business for, for this company. And I said, very good. And how many lines of business does your company have? And he answered, 10 lines of business. So I said, so you know, you have deep knowledge on one, but you have very limited knowledge on nine. So I said, 
in my company, we maybe have four or five lines of business, and I have worked in four of those lines of business. So I have maybe less depth in, in any particular line, but you know, like many functional people, you do get the opportunity to understand the breadth of the business and understand interrelationships within the business. Mm. And so to me, it's not necessarily about doing an out-of-HR role. It's about doing roles which can be in HR, but that straddle the company sufficiently that when you get to the kind of level that I'm at, now you do understand how the bits join up and how they relate to each other in a business sense. Now, working in the business is an ideal way to do that, but I think also it's about being close enough that you can get that horizontal breadth as well. Within a company the size of Shell, there'd be lots of divisional roles, HR roles, that would be bigger than many number one roles in, in the FTSE today. But how different do you think the role is of group HR director versus a big divisional role? I think there's many parts of that that um, get overplayed. So there's many bits that aren't really that different, and I'll come back to that. I think the only real difference is you, you don't have anywhere to go. I mean... So at the end of the day, you're it. So, so in all other roles, at the end of the day, there is someone in a functional sense who's higher in the system you knew and that person is available. And I think in, in, you know, when you're doing the top role, particularly if you're doing it in an organisation where HR is all functional, is all directly reporting into the top HR role, which I see more and more companies moving towards, as, as we did a number of years ago, then you are very conscious that something you just have to mull it over and at the end of the day you are the one that's accountable. The bits that I think are overstated is like the, di the dynamics of, you know, as Americans would say, managing the C-suite and or the board and whatever, but I think you know, divisional, good divisional HR people are already in that space. They are already managing the politics and the dynamics mm -hmm. and the relationships and the the trusted counsellor of the leader of the business and so on. So those roles, I think HR people do well at all different levels. You're just doing it at a higher level. So in that sense, it's more of the same. It's just a bit more complex. The board bit is a little bit different because inside of the organisation, the people you are with are all working to the norms and the culture of the organisation mm -hmm. because most were brought up in the organisation. The people on the board... Well, not brought up. They are deliberately people who come in from very different backgrounds, different perspectives, and therefore working with them, I think, is a bit of a challenge because you then have to adjust your own style to create the relationships that to be effective there. Um, but yeah, that would be my. I, but I think there's some of this kind of managing the board and all that. It's like some kind of black art. It's not. It's the same skills that HR professionals have been using with whatever level of. Yeah of team they've been working with. The exposure is just greater. Mm. I always say to my wife that if I'm ever going to get sacked from this company, it'll be because we had a mix-up on the, on the remuneration committee with the board. You just right. about get away with anything else as long as it's legal. Um, but that one, because that, that's where, yeah. in a sense, your role is very visible, it's got high reputational stakes for the corporation, and therefore if it goes wrong, people will look at you as the the accountable person on the executive side of the house. One of the decisions that perhaps becomes more important in the top role is the extent to which you spend time internally and externally. What guided you in, in your decisions there? Um, I think that was probably one of the areas I found hardest. Shell is a large company. 
it's global. You can spend your whole time traversing the world and, and never leaving the inside of Shell. And I was very conscious that when I moved into the top role, I did have to put a conscious effort. So like, like everyone else in my role, you get inundated with networks and opportunities. So I think you know, I remember deliberately spending the first year going to one of everything that my predecessor went to and then looking at some new ones and then making some very conscious decisions about which I would support and which I wouldn't support. And generally that decision was driven by the quality of the other people that were there. Yeah, so you, you, you're very conscious that you have to use your time well and therefore you have to find peers that make sense for you yeah? and that will be different for everyone in the role. So that was quite a conscious effort. You get increasingly conscious that you have a responsibility to give something back to the function. Uh, so I, I sit on the advisory board of the Center for Advanced Human Resources Studies in Cornell University in the United States, which is certainly the premier HR school in the US, if not if not one of the top ones globally. And you know, and we've had a long involvement. So you, you recognize you have to do those things uh, and it's important. And again, you build a network through that as well. I've also tried to maintain the right relationships with the academic side of, of, of HR, so making sure that you know, so the people who write all the books that we buy, um, I know them well personally, and I think that's important. Most companies in HR directors, we're all kind of dealing with the same stuff. Mm. The context in which we have to apply it is different, but the challenges I generally find are not, not uh, distant. I think the other change is you have, I've worked pretty hard to make sure I build <coughs> good networks which are away from the, the kind of US, Western Europe axis um, because there are some really excellent companies and excellent people, yeah. HR people in India and China and other parts of the world. What other advice would you give to the next generation of group HR directors? To me, I think that the... the you know, the invitation, if you like, to, to HR gets stronger. There's a certain irony that in a world where there is huge population growth, most organisations, whether they be in the developed world or developing world, all have the same common cry, which is the shortage of talent. Uh, and the dynamic, of course, that drives that is that the population growth isn't of the type that is in demand. And, and, and in most corporations... You see the developed world, so the UK would be a good example. We, we move up the value chain. So we have less lower level jobs and we have more sophisticated jobs, uh, which means the demands in the education system rise and so on. So, so there is a tension around that. And in the same time, even in places like China, whatever, you know, they are having to, their manufacturing is becoming more sophisticated, but the bulk of the Population growth is, is, is often people coming from rural backgrounds straight into, into cities and they have a gap between their needs and where the supply is. So, so I think you know, what that says is there is a huge pressure on, on HR to think through that issue. Um, and it's not just at the level of um, can we recruit, attract and retain the best people. It's also about trying to think very strategically about the balance between where you take work to people, where you take people to work, about where activity is done, about smarter ways of deploying capabilities. So things like organizational effectiveness, which early in my career I thought was some kind of fluffy tree-hugging activity, 
that there is a real hard edge to that activity and it's probably something I spend a huge amount of time on uh, these days. Uh, so I think, you know, I think my advice would be see that recognize as an invitation and and kind of ask the question, you know, how far can you take the influence that HR can have? I mean, and because I have these other bits in my portfolio, I'm constantly seeing connects across them. So I'm constantly looking and saying, well, as we look on how we kind of promote brand or how we engage with society at large through social media in the kind of external affairs side of my portfolio, you start getting all my questions. Well, actually, inside the organization, you already have a representative sample of society. So got the, the opportunity, in a sense, to, to use your own workforce, particularly if it's a, it's a large and global workforce, mm-hmm. to say, well, does this, if it's going to work with our own people, it can work with other people. Mm-hmm. And, and also your own people are, you know, in our case, 100,000 ambassadors. And if they're on Facebook and all have friends, and then you very quickly find you're talking about multi-millions of, of people. So for me, there's this debate about does HR reach out to being, you know, all the ways in which a corporation touches society. Mm-hmm. If you think like that, then and nothing else, it's a kind of exciting proposition in terms of saying how far should we take our involvement. Shell has produced a number of today's high calibre group HR directors. What do you think other organisations can learn from how Shell has developed great HR talent? We do enjoy quite a a good strength in terms of our, our talent. And I think the main reason for that is because for probably 40 to 50 years, we've just treated it the same as we would any critical discipline within the company. So I know of at least 15 years ahead of me, we were recruiting graduate entrants Mm. into personnel, as it would have been called, uh, as I was. But um, And you were recruiting them the same way we were recruiting accountants and petroleum engineers and um, marketing graduates and so on. And we gave them exactly the same development. So it was very structured sheep dipping if you like you will go and do a bit of this and a bit of that and so on and so if you like we have there is a feedstock into the bottom of our system mm-hmm. that we've sustained and maintained in a belief that essentially we have to grow most of our own timber at the same time yeah, we're large enough as a company with a strong enough brand that we can attract people in mm-hmm. mid-career and and we've done that i think if there's been a shift the shift i see happening a lot more is we probably, in the last 10 years, invested more in the specialists than the generalists. So we all love to be generalists because it's kind of where we think the action's at and, and it's usually the ones who are closest to the business. But my own reflection would be, certainly in the last 10 years, the idea that you can kind of um, retread a generalist into being a specialist, you will have some success with mm-hmm. that, but but you there is also a place, particularly if you, in large organisations, for real specialists. Remuneration and benefits are an obvious area, but but in learning and organisational effectiveness and talent, all these areas, I've seen grow. The, the demand for specialism has grown. I mean, most of my career, I never looked at pensions ever because mm-hmm. it was a completely static space. Nothing happened. It was just mm-hmm. same model. And probably in the last five years, I've spent more time on pensions. And it's probably been the single biggest exposure or risk in the HR space financially for many companies. 
and how many HR people are actually deeply rooted in their knowledge of that area. Not that many. I suspect when we look back in five years' time, there'll be a lot because we've had to develop people to, to manage what is a very difficult area. Yeah. As Group HR Director, you're essentially guardian of the organisational culture, but what's the role of culture in running your business? Whether you call it culture or DNA or whatever, I think you know if you write it on a poster on the wall, then it's not there. I think some, there was an expression once somebody said to me, you know when somewhere's got a strong culture when it seeps out the woodwork, which mm. I thought was a kind of nice, yeah. nice way of thinking about it. And for me, it is incredibly, you need it particularly in times of crisis. So when you are really challenged as an organisation, you need to find some common set of beliefs, values, um, a red thread, if you like, that, that you can then draw on to affiliate the organisation around to go forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, one level, it, it's, it's your kind of, it's your strongest defence to volatility on one level, because it's the underlying core beliefs that actually make people work together and collaborate mm-hmm. on, a, on a global basis. And in our company, if I walk into the Shell office in Argentina, or the one in China, or, 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 or the one in Canada, or whatever, I know I've walked into a shell office, and that can be a strength in those challenging times. The other side of it is if you can articulate what components of your your DNA, your culture, are clearly enablers to how you see success in the future, then it can be a very powerful force. So, I mean, an example would be um, if you were a company that had a, a, a deeply collaborative culture, then you could argue that as you look at emerging economies, that would be a great thing to have because most companies going into, say, China today will never be going in and able to operate as 100% foreign company. You will be in some venture structure or some, some collaborative basis. So if you actually have that as a natural part of your DNA, then, then you, you're advantaged against the company who says, well, we show up and we do it our way and that's the only way. But it also says you need to understand it and then you need to nurture it and develop it and invest in it and reinforce it through management behaviour, through, through, through things you do in HR around reward or, or how you, you, you manage your, your kind of leadership development and learning and so on. So, so I, yeah, yeah, you don't want to take this too fluffy and take it too deep, but I think most organisations it is important to A, have it there as a strength when you need it, but also look at the threads within it that can actually be directly linked to how you're trying to pursue your business. You've talked about the growing influence of HR in organisations. So do you think HR should have a seat on the board? I don't think it matters too much. I think there is a... I mean, we, we had a world in Shell where we had six executives on the board and we're now in a world where we have two. Right. Um, so we've kind of followed the model of, of typical PLC, the CEO and the, the CFO right. sit on the board. Yeah. The reality is when the board meets, the whole executive committee are in the room. So we, so we participate fully in the board process, uh, and that's important. If I look at our own company, probably after the CEO, the CFO and myself have the most access to the board. Mm-hmm. So we actually engage with the board more than any of the, the business directors, and that's because we you, you run the, the remuneration committee, you're involved in the nomination processes, um, 
you should have built the type of relationship with the, the chairman and the, the, the senior independent director where you can actually have confidential conversations about the dynamics of the leadership with the board, with the chairman. And, and you know, that, that I think is actually, you can have far more influence in that than carrying the kind of, uh, the label of sitting on, on the board. So I, 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 I think at the moment, the trend is very much one of limit the executive on the board, um, strengthen the weight of the non-executive yeah. carter. And I think directionally that is right because you don't want the board to just mirror the executive. You want the executive to be clearly running the company mm -hmm. and the board to be providing the right kind of support and challenge to the executive. Uh, and already, I think, you know, the, the, the HR director, uh, the CFO, and potentially the legal counsel, they have an important role in managing the bridge between those two mm -hmm. processes. Because at the end of the day, all of those roles have to be prepared to call it if it's not going the way it should. Mm. So in that sense, they, there is an accountability that you are conscious of. And despite most HR directors not being an executive on their own board, there is a growing trend for HR directors to be appointed as non-executive directors on, on other boards, as you have recently done at RSA. What, what do you think is driving that? Um, I, I think it, there's two drivers. One is, I think there is recognition and I think that's rightly needed that you need for a, for a board to be effective they need a breadth of experience uh, and a breadth of skills to be available to them um, and, and that means I think yeah, more and more boards are looking for a mix of people. If I look in my own case I think HR bit's part of it but I would like to think it's also because you've got an experience of an international company and, and so on so there's other qualities you, you bring. So I think that's part of it. The other bit of it is, yeah, that there are some technical parts of boards, particularly the remuneration committee, where their HR directors carry those skills. Yeah, and you know, you would find it odd in a company these days where they didn't have or wouldn't like to have an a current or an ex CFO running audit, mm -hmm. because they're just very conscious of the of the expertise level that's required to actually carry out that function of the audit committee. So. So I think it's probably those those two drivers that are in place, and yeah, it's good to see that you know, a lot of my colleagues and stuff are making that thing. I, I think it's less of a kind of you know we shouldn't pursue it as if it's some uh, thing that's got great meaning. I think what, what will happen is yeah, it, this will happen as a natural course of it, but it shouldn't be. We shouldn't look at it as an entitlement. I think mm -hmm. it's just saying we should, if people want to do it and they have the right qualities, then mm -hmm. being HR should not block you. Yeah. I think rather than. HR people should be a first choice because at the end of the day, like any team, you need the right dynamics of individuals and personality and so on. It's been really interesting to hear the story of your career, Hugh, and some encouraging words about the growing influence of the HR function. Thank you very much.